You know, we all got saved out of some mess. We all got saved out of some kind of mess. Your mess was particularly <laughs> messy, though. Hi, I'd like to welcome you to our show. I'm your host, Praying Medic. We're talking about life as a child of God and all things related to his kingdom. Thanks for joining us. If you're a new listener to the show, you can find articles and books and other resources on my website, www.prayingmedic.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter. Just look for Praying Medic. Now let's jump into this week's show. My guest on today's show is an old friend of mine, Alan Champkins. Alan and I first met back in 2009 or 2010. We became uh, friends on Facebook about the time I started blogging on the Mobile Intensive Prayer Unit. Alan is a former practitioner of Zulu witchcraft. He's going to share with us today an incredible testimony about how God revealed his love to him and brought him out of a life of witchcraft and into a brand new life in the kingdom. Yes. Um, Jeannie Craig sent me your testimony. I believe so. And I read that testimony. That is an amazing story. What God has done. It's one of those that I seldom share because most of the time people either don't believe me or just say it's too far out. Yeah. So, you know, we all got saved out of some mess. We all got saved out of some kind of mess. Your mess was particularly messy, though. <laughs> in, in, the eyes of, in the eyes of many people, when they hear your yeah. story, they're going to be shaking their head going, wow, how did that happen? Well, I think it's a case of exactly, you know, um, uh, <laughs> I say, God can save me. He can save anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I said the same thing. I've said the same thing for many years because, because you and I have a similar background, actually. Okay. A lot of people oh. don't know this, but in the 1990s, I was actually helping run a new age radio program on public radio. I, I considered myself actually to be an atheist. Uh, most of my adult life, but I got interested in new age music. And yeah. this fellow was, he was a student at the university that had a radio program and he was a radio broadcast major and he had to produce this program, but he didn't know anything about new age music. So he was playing music that wasn't very good. And I called him up a couple of times and I said, I gave him some requests of music I wanted to hear. We got to talking. He invited me down to the studio. So I went down and, um, he allowed me to help him pick out music that would be appropriate because I knew what music people like to listen to. And he didn't, he didn't care anything about new age music. He just had to do this radio show as part of a credit for his class. So I actually ended up selecting most of the music and then doing some of the on-air time introducing the music. And I kind of got into meditation a little bit at that time, but I never got very far into the new age, fortunately for me. My, my atheistic beliefs really kept me from pursuing anything really spiritual. But you were very interested in, in New Age spirituality in your 20s. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I mean, the irony of it is I actually came out of a Christian background. And that's the odd thing is you're, you were born into, your grandmother actually was a Christian. Yeah. Yes. Your parents were not believers. No, not. But your grandmother took you to church. Well, she, she never took us to church so much, but as when she, when she used to come and stay with us at my parents' house, she would read the Bible to us. 
as 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 children, six, seven years old. I, I still have a good news Bible. In fact, the very Bible that I started reading in my testimony, you know, signed 1982, dear Alan, love Grand Cook. Um, wow. <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, so I, I I grew up in a any there was no belief in the house as in as in faith wise. Um, but then at the age of 12, I went to boarding school. It was a Christian school. So, okay. you know, it, it was a church school, so Methodist or Baptist or whatever, I can't remember, but it was a, a church school. And there, it, the, well, well, put it this way, it was a private school. A lot of the private schools in South Africa are founded on um, Anglican church or Methodist church somewhere along the line. And so this particular school that I went to, it was a, a Christian-based school, and I gave my life to the Lord at school. I term I was a Christian. Yeah, I could hear God. I could sense Him. I could. I loved reading the so Word. So you had, you actually had a relationship with the Lord at that time. You could hear His voice. You could sense His presence. Yeah, everything. Our, I don't know how your school system in the in, in, in the states works, but that was uh, five. So it was about seven years before my school system finished. So my schooling finished. So I was 12, 12 or thirteen years old. And then I changed schools, and I despised. I think would be the best way to put it. My new school. Uh, it was a very tough time for me. I went from a school that I loved, very outdoors focused, to a, a, a very sporting school. And you ran into a lot of rejection at that time of yeah, your life. Yeah, at that point, a lot of bullying, a lot of rejection, um, a lot of hurt. And, and, um, but, I, but I kept my faith. But I think being at a boarding school, I had a fairly sheltered upbringing. My first year of university, I moved, I, I stayed in residence at university, and I think it was the first night of. You know, welcome to all the first-year students. And um, one of the guys that I met, is, you know, let's go and have a couple of beers. And I'm now big and all of all of 18 and a bit. And um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as I say, you know, I got to a stage where life fell off the the rails. So did you pretty quickly go into alcohol and drugs at that point? Um, well, a lot of partying first year. Oh yeah. yeah, just life was just one big party. So, so for me, it was just alcohol and and, uh, and a huge party for the first year, and then I I moved back home because my marks didn't um, warrant staying where I was, and I changed universities. And yeah, I just I suppose it was a it was a gradual thing. You know, I, I made new friends and and kept old friends, and over time they went off into stuff and. We kept partying, and then the marijuana came along. That was the the drug of choice. At one stage, there was some hallucinogenics, magic mushrooms, and, and LSD. But um, I never went into. I never did what anyone would say would be hard stuff. And just through the crowd that I was in, I got involved in in, in New Age beliefs. By that stage, my Christianity had I'd forcefully stopped the Holy Spirit talking to me. So I mean, there was always this tugged in my heart, but it just grew silent over over a few years or over a couple of years. And I moved into a what we call a digs or a commune. A whole lot of us shared a house. A, at that stage, I was working, a lot of partying, a lot of drugs, um, and uh, a lot of new age. I got involved in um, Buddhism, um, meditation. I was very interested. All my life, I wanted to be a geologist. And crystals? I very, yeah, I got very involved in crystals. Also, I... I've always had a love of the outdoors, and I got involved in and, and herbs to some degree or plants to some degree. So I got involved in herbal healing. That that led through to getting involved then in you know, nothing major, but just finding out about indigenous healing plants and 
through that came some interest in shamanism, American Indian spirituality, um, Tibetan Buddhism, and yeah, for me it was... It was a time of exploration for you. You were kind of exploring a lot of different things. Oh yes, oh yes, definitely. There was, it was, you know, the, the field was open. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. And I, and I was working as a tour guide at that time for a, a backpacker tour company. So there was a wide range of influences that you could, you know, Because you'd be meeting people from all over the world. Oh, yes. And, 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 and I mean, you always find one or two or, or, or more that had similar interests. And so you're discussing stuff and sharing information. And looking back, I loved it. It was great. Right. Um, and then you got introduced to Sangoma. Well, you know, what happened was we used to do uh, community development tours through the, through the company that I was working for. And so we used to go down. There was a, a place called the Valley of a Thousand Hills outside of Durban in KwaZulu-Natal. And we did a, a tour in a rural community where it was huts along the side of the river, right? a literal sense. And we'd get a local guide to take us around and we'd go from hut to hut and introduce the tourists to the people living there and they would have a meal and, and just share in everyday life experiences. But we always made a point of going to see a Sangoma. But it was more to just a different aspect of the culture, not from a spiritual perspective. For the benefit of the listeners who aren't familiar with what a Sangoma is. Okay. Um, a Sangoma could be defined in, depending on which side of the board you're on, anything from a traditional healer to a spiritualist to a um, what some people might call a shaman or a witch doctor. Okay. Okay. So you would go and visit, go and visit these people? Them. Yeah, but right. just go into the house and listen to some drumming. They'd, they'd normally be drying out herbs and medicine and you'd show the people it and the guide would explain what's what. And so because I was interested in herbalism and particularly indigenous plants, it, was a, it piqued my interest. At the same time, we used to do a tour that went to a, a, a shack and a township. And there what would happen is the tourists would be taken through a gu by a guide through the shacks and, and the shanty town and they'd end up at this lady's house where they'd have a meal and a couple of beers with the locals and shoot some pool and just the chance to meet and fellowship with, with local people. But the deal with her was, we'd go, this lady was, we'd go beforehand and say to her, Mrs. Kluwe, we've got five or ten people coming and she'd go off and buy the food and prepare it. So the people would eat some traditional food. And then in the afternoon we'd take the tour. And one, off, one morning I went through and I said to her, you know, we've got X number of people coming this afternoon. And out of the blue, she said to me, you don't want to talk to me today about, about the number of people coming. You want to talk to me like you're talking to a Sangoma. Now, she was a Sangoma. And I went, no, not really. Yeah, not really. <laughs> Doesn't, you know, I've, got, I've, I've got my own stuff. I'm not really want to come and have a council session with you. So she said to me, no, you want to come and speak to me. So I said, okay. And I walked into, into a room. And, uh, you know, we look back, I think, the cheek of it all. And she says, no, I've got to pay her. So it'd be like going to a, a psychic and saying, yeah, I want you to come and see me. Now you've got to pay and, me. And this is what it's going to cost you. <laughs> so, so she says to me, no, I must pay her. So I said, but, you know, you've asked me to come. And, no, 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 this is what it's got to do. Just understand. So, I mean, it's only 10 rand. So for us, less, for you, less than a dollar. Okay. So I paid her. And she lit some herbs and some candles and wafted the smoke over her and over me. And then she looks at me and she says, you know, 
I don't think you should play the lottery. <laughs> you should play with the horses. And these are your lucky numbers for the horses and all of this. Now, I've never been a gambling person in my life. I mean, I might take out, a, a, used to maybe take out a lottery ticket, I don't know, once every five or six months. So she's telling me these numbers and I'm going, this is absolute nonsense. What on earth am I doing here? Anyway, so then she carries on and I'm like, I'm wasting my time and I've got to go and I've got to get back. And then she says something out of the blue to me. She says, I see that you've got some struggles with your dad and um, there's an emotional block there and um, I know how to fix that. And suddenly it was, okay, this is interesting. Where did that come from? Yeah. And so she said to me, what I want you to do is I want, I'm going to give you a, a, like a prescription of herbal medicines and you need to go home and, and take the course. And then if anything funny happens or anything weird happens, come back and tell me. So I thought, okay, well, this is good. Yeah, I get to sample some traditional medicines. Um, and whatever happens, happens. You know, if this works, then great. So I went home and I suppose it was about a 15 or a 16 day course. And about a week or 10 days into it, I have a dream, but my dream is so vivid, it would be like you are in your house at the moment and everything is exactly as it is if you were awake, okay? And, and in this dream, I walk up to my bed and I open up my bed to Carmen, my duvet, and inside the bed is this massive green and purple snake, like a python-sized snake. And I look at this thing and I climb into the bed. Then I'm lying in bed on my side and I'm going, long list of explicits. <laughs> <laughs> in my dream, I can feel this thing has now come up and it's lying between my arm, my right arm and my chest. And I can feel it touching me. Now, I've done a lot of hiking and I've always, one of my fears has been waking up in the middle of the night or in the morning and inside your warm sleeping bag suddenly there's a snake and what are you going to do? So I can, I wake up out of the dream but I can still feel the snake is touching me. So I move as slowly as I can, and I turn the light on behind me, the bedside light, and I lift the duvet up, and one of those in, in, in a split second, yank the duvet off, jump out of bed, and there's nothing in the bed. And my heart is racing. I can feel where this thing's been touching me. And I literally, I strip the room. Everything, cupboards, under the bed, everywhere the windows were closed this thing couldn't have gone anywhere and i couldn't find it so as you can imagine this was um quite a frightful experience you were probably a little freaked out i was and, and you know looking back in some ways i actually think at that point my reality changed i i, I really in looking back i think i stepped into a different reality yeah i, I have a question about that dream at the time did you wonder or did you have any inkling what the meaning of that experience was? Nothing whatsoever. Looking okay. back now, I'm sure you do. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now I do. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So anyway, so uh, whenever the next day or not the next day, a couple of days later, it was my turn to do the same tour again. And I never phoned her and said, this is what's happened. And I went, yeah, it was like, well, maybe it was just a nightmare. Maybe it was. Anyway, so I went to go see her and she said, with a tour and she says to me, so tell me what happened. You know, did anything happen? So I said, I had this dream. And I explained it to her. And the first thing she asked me is, she says, what color was the snake? And I said, it was green and purple. 
and she starts ululating and jumping around and screaming and shouting and celebrating. And she looks at me and says, I knew that this was going to happen. But because you're a white person, I couldn't explain it to you. But that snake is your ancestral spirits that have now come to live with you. And it's proof that you need to train as what she termed an Inyanga. Now, an Inyanga is a herbalist. Okay, so you get two different You get an Inyanga, and then you get a Sangoma Sak. You get a herbalist, and then you get, I suppose, a psychic, a, super, no, uh, a shaman. And they both got different roles, but they complement each other. And Inyanga would dispense the medicine, but the, the Sangoma would work purely on the spiritual side. So I looked at her, and I went, okay, just like that. Okay, that sounds good. You know, like naive as anything. You know, thinking, wow, what an opportunity. Here's a white man, South Africa, 1997, three years out of apartheid. No one's got this opportunity. I didn't know of any other white people doing this. And I just thought, wow, wow, wow. This is a fantastic opportunity, one, to learn a completely new culture and to actually be able to relate between white and black and, 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 and even for myself, my interest in herbs and, and so on. So she says to me, no, 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 you don't understand. Once you start, you can never stop. And you need to be very, very serious about this situation. This is not a joke. This is a lie. Did she explain to you the consequences if you would try to leave? Not at the time. She just said to me, you, if you start, you cannot stop. Okay. And, and I, yeah, I heard it, but it was one of those that didn't actually really register. And you didn't know what that actually meant? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. So, so anyway... I mean, I, I pretty much made up my mind at that moment. She said to me, go home, think about it, and come back. In, in hindsight, I don't actually know if I had much of a choice. <laughs> I went back the next day, or, and I said, I'm in. And, um, of course, from her side, it was something she'd never, ever trained an English, a white English South African before in her entire life. Now, the thing with the Sangoma is they train an apprentice, yes. people who they feel led to, to teach. Yeah, yeah, it's not just anyone. Yes. Right. It has to be a specific person that's pointed out to them. To them, yes, exactly. So so I went back and I said, okay. So she said, you sure? And I said, yes. It was like, okay, off we go to the market. And it was literally from now on, your life is over. As, as Alan, partying, drinking, whatever, it was over. It was like going from being a party animal to living in a monastery, literally. That must have been a cultural shock. It, <laughs> it was, <laughs> but at the same time, there was just something about me like, this is just so right, if that makes sense. It was just right. You were going to learn a life of discipline. It was. It was going to be a life of discipline, but, it, but not only that, I just, when I looked at it, I thought, wow, what a, no one gets this opportunity. And, and even amongst the African people, it's not something that people choose willingly. So I just thought, as, as I said, as a white South African, this is amazing. Anyway, so we off we went and bought new, you got a, I suppose you'd call it a sarong, we call it a hia, it's a, you know, this is a family tradition, the family sign for this, for our clan, various beads, you've got to make them into necklaces, and they're all going to be blessed, and various other things, and then we went to the market, and she bought a chicken, a real live <laughs> chicken, and I went, what's that for? She said, you'll see, <laughs> and I came, went back to her house, and um, she started the ceremony, and killed the chicken and I had to drink its blood and put the feathers on my head and the gallbladders were inflated and tied into my hair and all sorts. And, and 
I must say, when, when that happened, I was repulsed. It was, oh, actually, no, yeah, I'm new age, I love everything, and what's a sacrifice for? And, but I, I went through with it. I thought, okay, either I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. And, and, and in all honesty, I left in the evening, and I thought, okay, that was weird, but I don't feel any different, I don't sense anything different. And so I got home, and, and as I said, we used to stay in this commune, and I parked my car on the side of the house, and there was a, a lovely sheepdog, which one of the guys who used to live with us, the dog's name was Mass, short for Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> he had three dogs, Texas Chainsaw and Massacre. <laughs> and, um, <That's> funny. <laughs> so Mass was this lovely sheepdog, which was as, a loving dog and playful as anything. Anyway, and normally the moment you walked around the corner of the house, this dog would come running up to greet you. And this evening, I walked around the corner of the house. This dog jumped up. It looked at me. It barked like it was there was a foreigner on the property and it wanted to attack. And it just turned around and ran off whimpering. And I went, what was that? Something happened. So and you didn't feel any different, but the way I, the dog reacted to you, you knew something was something I had happened. Exactly. Anyway, so everyone in the in in the commune that I was staying in thought I was just weird, but um, people still do. And my my folks went, "Oh, my dad, what are you doing now?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can imagine your parents must have been. Oh yeah, particularly fairly conservative. Oh, here goes Alan again. Anyway, that was probably October, November '97, because I was working. You see, not. Traditionally, if you become a what they call an utwasa, someone who trains, you live at the person's house. You're adopted into their family. You literally become a, their member of their family. And everything they have is yours, and everything you have is theirs. But because I was working, and I, had a, I, I stayed in a house elsewhere, they made a special deal with me that if I was working, I had to, then obviously I could go to work and I could go home after that. But every free moment that I had, I had to basically live at their house. She became a mom for me. She literally said, I'm your mom now. And she treated you like a son. Exactly like a son. Exactly. Every single Utwasa she treated exactly like a son. They were adopted into her family, full rights of being a son. Uh, because I was an adult, I suppose, maybe, and maybe because I was, all, I was unique in the sense of view of skin color and culture, I might have got a bit of preferential treatment. But the idea is that as an Utwasa, you're treated as a son, but you live as a slave. So you right. do all their work while you're there. You wash the dishes, you clean the floor, you, you basically learn servanthood in a very fast way. And the way she learns is it's all entirely hands-on. You would go right. to the market and get the medicines or the plants, or in this particular area of Durban, there were the guys who sold all the plants they'd harvested. And you'd okay. go and choose and pick barks and roots and, and, and stuff like that. And then we would sit there with our machetes and chop all day. Until you got blisters in your hands, until the blisters in your hands turn to calluses, and then you got new blisters, and and mix and match, and she'd explain to you, and she'd be seeing clients at the same time or patients, and you'd be sitting in with her and and learning as she went, and at the same time, so it was it was very practical, and there were a number of us who were training at the same time. When I started, there was a, a young lady in her early twenties in Kizé with me, and then by the time I left, there were probably another five people or four people that are with her. And a couple of the people who started the course dropped out. 
Yeah, what happened was it's very intensive. It, it, it really is. It's, it's spiritually demanding. It's physically demanding. It's time demanding. And, and there are two. The first one was in Kizi. Now, what happened to her was she was studying at the time at university. And okay. she didn't want to do this. But her ancestors were forcing her to. Or the spirits or whatever. Now, I, you know, when you talk of ancestors, I just thought, oh, ancestors are rubbish. Man. Guiding spirits, guiding angels. You know, right. you that's, that the, that's the difference because... Yeah. In, in this African culture, they very much believe that the spirits they're speaking oh, yeah. to, they're ancestral spirits. But you, being from a New Age background, you thought, no, 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 these are not ancestors. Exactly. They're, they're guiding spirits and so on, you know, and definitely right. not ancestors. I mean, and I mean, they would even joke, some of them would say, oh, you know, white people don't have ancestors. I mean, that was the standard comment, white people don't have ancestors. Anyway, so this one girl in Kizia, she decided to drop out. And now mom would always say to me, now mom, I refer to my Zulu mom, Mrs. Shubi, and she's, she would always say, you know, if you stop, the spirits will kill you. It's, it, once you start, you can't stop. They, you, they own you, and you've, you've dedicated your life to them. When you stop, what will happen is if you disobey them, you'll get bad luck. And right. other shamans or witch doctors might attack you, and you're always in a spiritual battle, and things will start going wrong for you. You might get sick, or you might get mentally ill, or you might just die. And that was a very real part of this practice was oh. the uh, the curses and the spells and the other witch doctors doing all this stuff to people. Yeah, that was something yeah. you had to constantly be aware of all the time. And you know, even stuff like you know, you clip your fingernails, and now we just throw the stuff in the bin, or you cut your hair. Now there, you take every last little bit of hair and fingernails, clippings, any item of clothing that you left around, you made sure you had it with you. You didn't just leave it lying around. And like your fingernails and your clippings, any bones from the sacrifices that were made, that all went into the long drop of the pit latrine because no one would go in there to get that. Right. Because okay. if somebody had something, a part of you, a part of your, a lock of your hair, exactly. then they could that use that be. against you. Yeah, so like what you might term as voodoo, they'd use that. There were two types. It was, it was umtagati, which was black magic. And then what we did, which was termed white magic, you know. Now, your mother, she was convinced that what she was doing was white magic, was good magic. Oh yes. oh, yes. And I mean, she even said to us openly, you know, if you change and do start to using your power for bad and to hurt people, you'll never, ever change back. Everything okay. will change. And, and once you start doing that, it's gone. And she would say that if you do that, you're gone. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Anyway, so Mkizi decided to leave. And she became very sick. She just started wasting away. And, and she died. So now you had some evidence that maybe if you do try to leave, yeah. something will, bad will happen to you. Yeah, so there was a fear factor. And then there was another, there was a young boy, and I can't remember his name, but he must have been 15 or 16 years old who started it also. And likewise, he didn't want to do it. But his parents had sent him there, and some son Gormer had said, you know, this is what you need to get free and so on. And, and the ancestors want you and... And he literally, he walked out one day and he ended up walking through the township naked and mad. Just lost his mind completely, whether we'd say schizophrenic or, or whatever else it was, he just went crazy. So now you have two people who tried yeah. to get out yeah. and now the fear factor is even worse. Well, it never bothered me in that sense. Because yeah, you weren't thinking of leaving. No, not at all. I was in. And, and, and so, you know, I mean, and, and the irony of it, my first sacrifice to a chicken was like, oh, no. And then, then came the goat. <laughs> the goat. Like, oh, no. 
And then, <laughs> and then, but because there were, there were a number of people training with me, every single weekend somebody had something going on. They had to sacrifice something. And right. so it was, a, it was a goat feast. <laughs> goat How feast. do you like roasted goat? How does that taste? Well, well most of it was boiled. Yeah. And, uh, but I loved it. You know, okay. for, for a South African who likes red meat, that was, that was just as close to heaven as I could get at that stage. I mean, we would fast for two or three days a week, every week. Okay. And, and there was a continuous regimen of, of, of what we call muti, medicines, herbal medicines that you're taking to protect you, cleanse you, open up your senses, your spiritual senses as such, um, and to give you power. And then, of course, these feasts. And, and what I noticed was every time I'd get stronger, every time. And you could feel at a stage the power. It was, you, it was there. I can't describe it. I, I, I haven't, even as a Christian, walking and healing in that now, I haven't felt that like I did then. This presence was completely around you. And, and what do you, have you thought about you know, what you would attribute that to, that sensation of uh, power around you? In hindsight, it was, it was definitely spirits. You know, I think what a case of where, where it was, was you gave your life to something. And that thing then said, I'm going to give you power. You, you worship me and you follow me and you obey me. And I mean, you know, yeah, even we had to like ask for permission from the spirits to go to the shop. Like I want to go buy milk down in what we call my escort in my little spirit corner. And I'd pray to the spirits. Can I and go the to spirit the would have to give you permission to go to the shop. Yeah. And if you said no and you went, then there would be suddenly there'd be Retrib bad luck or retribution from the spirit. So it would be absolute obedience all the time. You and, know, and I've, heard, I've heard from people who got into Satanism yeah. that the reason why they do human sacrifices and things of that nature is because Satan has promised them power if they obey. Well, well it's all about power. It is all about power. And, and you see, this is the irony of it. Years later, in hindsight, what I realized is I was looking for love. It right. was substituted by power. Okay. No, no one's going to love me, but they're going to respect my power. Exactly. Okay. And so there was this hunger you know, inside me, which was obviously being met from a spiritual side. And it just grew. And, and, and so about six months into it, April or so of 1998, Mrs. Chubby, my mom said, you know, you're ready to graduate as an Inyanga. You have some spiritual powers, but you'll be mainly a herbalist. You could Uklula, which is basically like, you know, seeing the spirits. And so we got prepared to start the final ceremonies and get everything going. And, and, and she said, basically, what will happen is you'll move out and you'll start your own practice and your own life. But we're always a family. So I'd go back to her for advice and, and help. And you had developed a pretty decent reputation by now, hadn't you? Were there some clients who were coming to you or not at that point? There yet? were clients coming to me. You see, everyone, to start off with, you had to see her with, through a client. So she'd always check. But I mean, we used to sit there, it's funny, because we used to sit, her, her house was in a U-shape and the courtyard was in the middle of the U. Sitting on the wooden bench in the sun and someone would walk around the corner and she'd say, tell me what's wrong with that person. Why are they here? Just like that. Uh, right. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay. Are you wrong? No, look at this. Yeah, you, you missed this part. So why do you, yeah, like now we think, oh yes, um, you know, you, say you've got a sore knee. Now for right. them. You're looking, give me a word of knowledge for that person. Yeah, but, but now the word of knowledge would be something like, your dad died five years ago, and 
you never sacrificed the cow that you were supposed to sacrifice to honor your dad because X, Y, Z, and you said you were going to do it later. And the ancestors are very upset with you now, and that's why you have your, your this has died, you've lost your job. I mean, it's like, now, as a white person, this is completely foreign. <laughs> Where did that come from? You know? um, and they'd literally, the spirits would, you just open your mouth and they'd speak through you. Then she says to me, actually, the spirits have been talking to her, and she, she believes that they want me to carry on and train as a Sangoma also which is now I'm going to go full on into the shamanic side of it. Right. So you've already learned the herbalist side, but now you're going to yeah. be learning and, the spiritual a, side. A little bit of the spiritual side, but not much. I was by now just like, yes, thank you. This is great. And so I really, I mean, it was like I just dived into it. Now, at the time, this was probably May or June. You seem like the kind of guy who's either all in or not in at all. Yeah, someone said to me um, the other day, he said, this guy is one of the craziest guys you'll ever meet and one of the sanest guys you'll ever meet. And I think that's kind of pretty much sums me up. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can be very reserved and I can be very over the top. She, um, she says you've got to train. Now, there's this Christian girl, Jill, who used to live in the house with us. And she actually left because she said it's completely spiritually oppressive where I am and, and I'm destroying her faith. And she can't tolerate it here, and it's being she's being attacked all the time. And at the time, I was like, "Yeah, good riddance." Yeah, Christian. Before I even became a Sangoma, I decided I hated Christians and I hated Christianity. And and, see, that's and, another thing we have in common. Yeah, because uh -huh. when I was an atheist, I could not stand Christians at all. Didn't want to be around them. They just annoyed the heck out of me. Yeah, what I say to people now is, all those years, I thought Christians were the biggest bunch of hypocrites you could ever meet. And now I found myself being one. <laughs> Decide which one it is, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's. I tell you that the irony of that, though, when it hits you, when you realize, wow, I hated these people, and now I'm one of them. <laughs> what in the world? I know, I know. It's like, you know, God's got a sense of humor. So you're going to uh, your Sangoma training? Yeah. So I go into my Sangoma training, and, and and it really it just it goes in a lot deeper. There's a lot more focusing on the spiritual realm and what's going on around you and obviously, you know, how to minister to people, how to look at people, what to do. And, and you know, we look at stuff, what I realized is, I don't know what it's like for you guys in the West, but white people in South Africa, there's a whole realm that you've got no idea what goes on around you. I find myself, when I'm ministering to people, if they let me do that, yeah. it is really amazing what is going on in the spiritual realm around people that most of them are completely unaware of. And actually, I'm going to be writing about this in, I'm writing a fictional series of books that opens up the spiritual realm and shows the world of demons interacting with the, the physical world. Because there's so much going on that people really don't understand. They don't. They just think they're walking, you know, around depressed and you know, feeling um, rejection and feeling all these depressing emotions, they don't realize they're in this war and there's all these demonic beings that are doing these things to them. They don't, they're completely unaware of it. No, no. And I mean, I look at it and I think, you know, yeah, when I say to people, yeah, you had medicine for court, you had medicine to be able to get a job, you had medicine to be able to fix marriages, you had medicine to, I mean, anything. Yeah, I mean, you know, people used to come to us. Now, we, we believe we're doing good. And they'd say, We've got a court case, and we would say, okay, you know, it's, it costs money. Everything costs money, but we're right. going to 
make medicine for you and cast a spell, and um, you don't have to worry about that court case. And the docket would just disappear, literally just disappear out of the police station. I, I, one of the times I remember my dad had a trade union meeting, and at the time when the trade unions were really active and, and confrontational. And I just said to him, I said, he said, oh, no, I'm not interested in any of your stuff. And then I said, no, don't worry. And I just put some stuff under his desk. Everything's going to be taken care of. And it all worked out. You get to a stage where you just, you're walking in such a realm that things happen around you. Like, i never forget, I, I used to drive a, an old Land Rover. And, and we were driving down the motorway or the freeway. And there were traffic cops and there was, they were trapping. And I was speeding. And, and I was with my mom, my Zulu mom, and I said, oh, oh, they've caught me. And she said, no, don't worry about it. And at the very moment, the guy looking at the camera, they stood up and they just started talking to each other. And we drove past. <laughs> now I look at that and I think, okay, what happened? And to this day, I don't think we really understand the spiritual dynamics that go on around us. Yeah, we don't. Your Zulu mom was a Jedi, though, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So what started happening to me was being a white person, you get a lot of you just weird, you know, who are you and you crazy and you belong in a mental institute and what's going on and all this stuff. Sort of thing. And I started to notice that the people that criticized me, things would happen to them, that they would suddenly get sick or they would something would happen and they'd have unexpected expenses or they'd lose a job or they'd start having bad luck. And I'd explain to my mom and I'd say, what's happening? And she said, no, 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 that's because the moment they, they make themselves to be your enemy, your ancestors will fight against them. And it was, okay. And then she said, yeah, but that's why you've got to always make sure you're absolutely straight and always pure. And Which obviously was like, oh, wait, I don't want that to happen to me. I mean, at one stage, I mean, to give you the level that you're operating at, there were two ladies who were Satanists, full-blown Satanists. Okay. And they used to come to me for spells for protection. Okay, That's pretty high-level power. That's high. No, no, it's high level. Okay. Mm. And so when I looked at it, I think, okay, we were sitting as shamans operating in what I termed then the highest spiritual power aside from Christian God in Africa. Okay. And then in all this, one day, I think it was in June, I'm walking in a shopping center. So upmarket shopping center in a white upmarket suburban area with my mom. And I think there are three or four Utwasas with me. And we're all dressed in our uniforms and skins on and headdresses and the whole works. I, she went shopping for something. I can't remember what it was. And we all trailed behind her. And this man walks up to me out of the blue. And he walks straight up to me into my face. And he says, excuse me, Jesus loves you. And I looked at him and I laughed straight in his face. And I went, yeah, Jesus loves you too. Ha, 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 ha. And swore at him and walked off. That was a catalyst. My heart and my outer body and everything else was so hard that it took four or five months to get through. Those words were just, it was a trigger. It was a trigger. And then God started to do some things that you yeah. didn't expect. I didn't expect. The lady who was training me, her husband was part of the Zion. He was a minister, Christian minister in the Zion Christian Church. They called African Initiated Churches. So you can go Google it. And they, they range from being fully 100% Christian to Jesus's another ancestor. It's a fruit of apartheid and it's a fruit of missionaries who've walked into an area 
converted Christians and then left them. And no discipling. Okay? Exactly. Right. And so they go and then and then they've met Catholics. Yeah, but but what they said is, but wait a moment, the Catholics prayed to Mary as a mother of Jesus. So why can't we pray to our ancestors and to Jesus? Because Mary is Jesus' ancestor. Okay? So the whole thing gets thrown into this big melting pot which ends up being a spirituality defined by the beliefs of the local priest or their branch of the African-initiated church. And so this one that I was in, the, the husband would preach out of the Zulu Bible, but we as the Sangormas would pray for the sick afterwards. Now, because it was a church, you couldn't give, um, you couldn't give medicines, but you could bless the water. Okay. And then they'd take the water to drink and, and so on. And... Um, he said to me, he said, you know, one day when you're married, because you could only be a priest if you're married, you can become a priest also, but you need to start reading your Bible. And so I took my Bible that my grand had given me 16 years earlier, and I opened it and I started reading it. Thou shalt not practice witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Thou shalt not practice witchcraft. Witchcraft is an abomination to the Lord. And it just went on and on and on. And at the same time, I had this growing fear in my heart because it was like, wait a moment, so if these, and if these spirits genuinely love me, why did they kill him, Kizi, and turn this other guy mad? Why, if I disobey them in even the slightest possible way, does bad luck and stuff start happening to me? You know, it's complete obedience or nothing. Is that really love? And then, of course, reading the word and this kind of this witchcraft, 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 witchcraft. And so yeah. I went back to her and I said to her, you know, you told me to read the Bible and this is what it says. And she said, no, 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 but look in the Zulu Bible. Here it says there's two types of witchcraft. You know, there's the good witchcraft, which we are doing, helping people. And umtagati is the black magic. Now, this is just saying don't do umtagati, just do the normal stuff. But it never answered my question. Uh, Why do the spirits turn on you when yeah, you don't obey them? Exactly. And is this right? And, and so I kept reading my Bible. And the more I read my Bible, the more it was like I got this deep, deep sense of unease and fear. And, and I realized, actually, this, my life isn't mine anymore. I am owned by a spirit or a series of spirits, completely owned by them. And, and they demand total obedience or nothing at all. And, but I didn't know how to get out. I had no answer, no clue, because I didn't want to die. I didn't want to go crazy. And in all honesty, I actually enjoyed what I was doing in, 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 a, in a different way. And, and so it wasn't a physical unease. On the surface, everything was nice. I was making money doing it. I, was, I had clients. I was, you know, I walked through Durban and, and people, oh, my course, my course, which is the symbol to greet a, a, a Sangoma. And so, but... Underneath, inside, there was this constant turmoil. Then, in end of October, I think it was, 1998, my mom, my Zulu mom, had uh, a ceremony, like a coming-of-age ceremony for her, a massive thing. And she was going to slaughter two cows and, and have a massive feast. And uh, in those, you know, we, it's not like us, let's have a feast and invite our friends. There, your whole community comes. Anyone can come. And you've got to provide some food for them. So it's a big event. Friday morning, we're preparing for the ceremony, and I get a phone call. Your grand's died. So I go to my mom, and I say, 
my grandson. And I understand that there's a problem because the moment there's a death in the family, you're richly unclean. So she says, you know, very disappointed. You need to go home and you need to just wait. And once I've sorted all my stuff out and your grand's buried and all of that, then I'll come and see you and we'll do some the cleansing ceremonies. And then after that, your, your grand will be sitting on your shoulder. And she okay. tapped me on my shoulder. And the moment she did that, God said to me, but she's with me. And, and this went, is where you finally started to have some questions and answers. Exactly. It was, suddenly it was, uh, wait a moment. Maybe these aren't guiding spirits. <laughs> what are they? <laughs> okay. And it was like at that same question, it was demons. So Lying the Holy Spirit, Spirit told you, your grand is with me. Yeah. And your mom was telling you, she's sitting on your shoulder. She's going to sit on my shoulder once you're finished. And I'm like, okay, what is this? And it was that familiar spirit. By that stage, the, the new age was, I didn't even do anything anymore. I mean, I had a crystal around my neck to keep me <laughs> pure. But I mean, it was like, what's this right. thing? It's rubbish. You know, it was it, you know, throwing, throwing a cup of water into the ocean. Right. Yeah, it paled in insignificance. Well, the power that you were walking in was, I mean, some people look at crystals and go, oh, wow, power. But the power you were walking in as a Sangoma, yeah, that yeah, makes I crystals think. look like child's play. Yeah, but look, the, I mean, there's still power in them, in crystals and that. And, yeah. and it, it does certainly lead on to stuff, and it can open doors, and, and obviously you can develop it. It's, it's the same as Reiki and all of that. You just develop it. In fact, that was one of my questions that I kept having. It was like, why, why when you're praying for someone and you're giving them medicine, are they coming back a little while later? And, they, and it would come back with something worse. And, and the irony of it was, you see, we charged money. So it would only be 10 rand for a consultation, not like a... Not like a doctor you go to now who charges a small fortune for, for consultation and then depending on the medication, varying fees. We charged almost nothing for a consultation, but the medicine itself could range from a couple of rands, so, you know, half a 50 cents or a dollar, up to you know, three or four or 500 rands, so over $100. And, and these people, they will go and stuff would happen and then they would come back. And they would come back for something else and it would be a greater ailment or a different attack on something else. And I kept saying, but why? We've dealt with them. Now, why are they coming back? And, and she would say to me, no, no, it's because you're so powerful now that the spirits are drawing <laughs> them back. And what I realized in hindsight was you actually created a spiritual bondage with them. You, you, you literally, by them coming to you and being ministered to you, you created, you brought them into a spiritual bondage. And without them even knowing it, they were now under your control you didn't control them as such as in like mind control and that but there was the link there so was dependency there was a dependency and i suppose in some ways what someone might call it today in christian circles there was a soul type created right okay and so they, they would come oh this worked last time so let's go straight back to that person again and, and i kept thinking but why why you know and 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 as if you just say to me it's because you're so powerful anyway so my grand dies and um i go home and I'm on my way home, I realized, because she said to me, now you can't come back until everything's cleansed and sorted out. And I realized that this was my opportunity. And I went home, I was sat in my lounge, and it was, I didn't want to open my mouth. I didn't even want to speak because I was so scared that the moment I spoke, the spirits would kill me or something would happen. The roof would cave in. And, and so I sat in the couch in the lounge, and it was like, 
oh, what do I do? Yeah, through my head all the time. And out of that came Jill, who used to live in this commune with me. She worked at a nursery a couple of kilometers down the road. And so I thought, let me go and see her. And so I walked. I didn't come in my car. <laughs> <laughs> why did you why did you get in your car were you were you afraid of something happening in the car oh yeah oh yeah i, I realized the moment I, the, the moment i opened my mouth and i made a decision then all hell is going to come against me okay okay and so i went up to her and um i think the first thing i did was apologize <laughs> <laughs> and i just said joe i need help i don't know what to do i want out she looked at me wide-eyed and, and being a fairly new Christian, she just said, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to phone some people in my church and um, I'll let you know. And so while I stood there, she phoned them and they said, we're going to come over this evening or after work, we'll come over and, and we'll chat to you. And I walked home, now like really scared. And um, I, I sat down on the couch in the lounge and I don't think I moved. My, I phoned my parents and I said, I'm, I'm out. I've stopped. And my mom actually came over and, and she chatted to me a bit about it and why. And, and um, my dad's response is, what's he going to do now? And I just sat there. But I, I literally, it was like, okay, when am I going to die? And that evening, two people came over, one of which is, well, they're both still friends of mine, or acquaintances. But they walked a long journey with me, uh, Roy and Mark. And, and they, they led me to the Lord. Uh, gave my life to God, repented, everything that we had, that I, that I had, that was even associated with, with it, um, down to the money that I'd made in my little spirit room, the, the medicines, the clothing, everything. It was either cut off me or it was put into a big pile, we put into a bonfire, and it was burnt. And that fire screamed. The fire screamed. The fire screamed while it was burning. As you're throwing stuff, and every time stuff was thrown, and someone would scream. Okay. Mm, and, and, interesting. And, yeah. And then because the room that I was sleeping in was also my spirit room, I didn't want to see it. I was like, what am I going to do? So that was early November. Joel then said, no, what? Well, you can spend the night at my house. I didn't have anywhere to. I, I slept at her house that night. And then the next day, Roy and Mark came. It was the weekend. Took me to their church. Met the minister. Prayed more. Got baptized. Went through a deliverance, which I know nothing about. I don't recall what happened at all. And then I went home. It was one most amazing god so incident after that, afterwards. <laughs> my, my, my cousin was getting married about, I don't know, 600 miles from us. My brother worked in a different province. He was down for that weekend because of my grand's funeral. He said to me out of the blue, and he's, not, he's still not a believer, he said to me out of the blue, why don't you come and stay with me up um, where he's working? And then we'll go to my cousin's wedding afterwards in Johannesburg together. And so, you know, I'm out of here. And, and um, never forget, my brother drove on a dark night in the rain on a windy road for however many hundreds of kilometers at well above the speed limit. And I just sat in the car <laughs> going, this is it. I'm dying tonight. <laughs> But we got to the place where you were staying, and, and it was there that I wrote that letter that you've now seen to my mom, explaining what I've done. I and have that right in front of me here, actually. It was tough, eh? You know, it was, it was, it was, writing, to, it was writing to a family member and realizing that you're never going to see her again, and, and at the same time, like a real deep love for her. 
it's got to be difficult because she absolutely believed that what she was doing was good and was the right I, thing, was her destiny. And she believed you the same thing, that it was your destiny. It had to be very difficult for her. I, I believe it was. Um, I've never had any contact with her since, you know, um, and, and in some ways I actually wish I would see her. But even when the others, had, when they'd left, I mean, it was just a, you've gone now, I have nothing more to do with you. But it was an intense time. God was gracious. So I went to this, my cousin's wedding, came back, and it was like, Lord, what do I do now? Because I'm living in the same place. It was a spirit room. I am working at the same company. It's a backpacker's company still. Everyone recognizes me by my face in Durban. So even if I just walk down the street like normal, people are going to recognize me. And obviously work colleagues recognize me and they thought I was loony to start off with. Now they think I'm even loonier. <laughs> and, and the most amazing thing happened. Uh, well, a few things. First of all, I think it was two weeks after I got back, I was on a tour up in the Drakensberg Mountains and my uncle owned a tour company up there. And I walked into his office at the exact instant where him and my cousin were talking and saying, we need another tour guide, the exact instant. And they said to me, we need someone, but we can't afford to pay you. And, and I said, I don't care. And, and, and they were Christians. Okay. And I found out later that, I mean, you know, when people say your yeah, intercessory prayer, yeah, it doesn't work. Or what are you praying for? And so on. So on the Friday morning was the morning that I left where I was as a Sangoma and drove out and found help in that. That Thursday night, the home church of my aunt and uncle had made a decision to spend the whole evening praying for my salvation. Wow. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we don't understand. The power of prayer. We don't. And they really, it was amazing. They took me in under their wing. There was ongoing deliverance. There was spiritual attacks. And, and for about a year, it was ongoing. But it was amazing because I'd start off with the long, oh dear God, I'm your son, please, please, please. And then one day God just said to me, just keep it simple. And it was Jesus, the moment I sent something coming on, it was Jesus help me and it stopped immediately. But wow. the one thing that, that, that continued for years and years was nightmares. My, my wife testifies to um, me rescuing her at night from oncoming trains and <laughs> jumping out of bed and killing spiders coming off the walls and, and and even to this day I still sometimes have weird dreams you, you know what my, my question was at first I was very reluctant to go down any road involving prophecy or spiritual healing or anything like that I didn't even want to touch it because it was like how do I define the link between what is what I was in coming back right. And where I am now. And I didn't even touch it for years. And a, and that is very, very common. I know a lot of people who have come out of Buddhism and, yeah. you know, meditation in the New Age. Yeah. And they're all very, very reluctant to talk about anything that is truly spiritual. Like, you know, prophecy and um, things of that nature. Uh, spirit travel. Because they, get, they have this conviction like maybe it's all bad. And maybe... That's all demonic. And so I, I counsel those people, you know what, that's okay for a season. Don't pay any attention to that stuff. Just get yourself grounded in the Word and get yourself a good, strong relationship with the Lord. And if at some time in the future 
he starts to introduce you back to that stuff to his version of it then you know be be willing and be open to it but yeah. for a lot of people they have to walk away from that completely for a while yeah and that's where i was i i, I literally just walked away from it i got involved with the mainline church I preached, I ran a home cell, home church, uh, you know, group within the church. Uh, I was very active in the church. I shared my testimony from time to time, but I never was active in, like, hey, look at me. This is what I've done. This is where I've been. This is what the Lord's done. First of all, most people don't believe me. And the second one is we've all been saved out of stuff. We were, you know, we were all a mess before we were saved. And we all came to the Lord for our own selfish reasons, whether it was, you know, the Lord will make me prosper or heal me or save me out of my sin or whatever, you know. Every one of our salvations was selfish. Yeah, how can I define, well, money was your God and this was my God? I mean, how do you say one's worse than the other? The whole healing, the, that side, everything. I left it. But what I couldn't understand was the Bible clearly was you go and you heal the sick and you set the captives free and and here is God who saved me from what technically was the greatest spiritual power, and I put it in inverted commas for the listeners, in Africa. And yet we sit in a church where most people are dead. And there's no power whatsoever. There's, there's nothing. It's the sum total of Christianity for most people is going to church on a Sunday. I just couldn't relate the two. I, I, I really struggled. And then, so this was then about 2006. So eight years afterwards. I started to ask questions. Really, Lord, what's going on here? Now, I got involved in, in a healing movement. I got involved in deliverance ministry, obviously, because where I was, there were some people, you know, can you pray for me? And, and I got involved in, in territorial intercession and climbing up mountains and waving flags and banners <laughs> and, and all sorts of stuff. So I was, I was active spiritually in that sense, but I was still going like, Lord, where is this stuff that you really want to see? And, and at the time, I was working on a camp um, kind of doing what I'm doing now, running camp programs. And uh, this was early 2009. And it was the first time I've heard the audible voice of God as someone speaking to me. And this voice said to me, out of the blue, now I'm standing in front of a group of people and I'm facilitating an activity on a camp. And I hear this voice and it says, Alan, if you're seated with me in heavenly places and I live in you, why are you so ineffective? <laughs> And I looked around, and there was nobody there. But I knew in my heart it was God. And, and right. I've never, ever forgotten those words. And looking back, I kept trying to be somewhere and realizing that I was never getting there because I always looked at myself and my own shortcomings and my own failure and my own sins and whatever else. And in that, God was saying to me, you're there, you're with me, and I'm in you. But I didn't understand it. Then, I suppose that was early February. Then mid-February, late February, I'm on an, in, this inner healing conference, and I'm one of the, the leaders, and um, we having our morning devotion. And I feel Psalm 103 come on, you know, and as the anointed leader and helper, I pull out my Bible, and I go to Psalm 103, and I said to everyone, yeah, I've got a Psalm I want to share with you, and that's what the Lord's saying. And as I open it up, God says to me, I want you to tell them that this is not a fluffy song. This is David commanding his body what to do and the benefits of being a Christian. So, so I said, you know, okay, this is what I feel God's saying, you know. And David said, praise the Lord, and I command my body to praise the Lord and all that is within me to bless his holy name and forget not all his benefits. I am healed. I am, all my sins are forgiven. I am being redeemed 
from the pit. And I'm being crowned with love and compassion. And my life is satisfied with the good things so that my youth can be is renewed like an eagle. And everyone looked at me and went, yeah, yeah, that's nice. That word's for you. But then we broke up to go and pray for people and do the lists of renunciations and repentances and, and all sorts. And I get given a lady in a wheelchair. <laughs> and she was in a so how did you feel about that? Well, you know, was, well, I was sitting on in a healing course. I suppose it's like even now we feel, you know, sometimes as, as even healing ministers, like I hope someone else goes to pray for that person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't look at me. It's not my turn. It's your turn. Go get her. Give me the headache. I'll get that right 100%. <laughs> and so I get this lady, and her, and her name was Linda, and um, she was involved in a car accident as a result of drinking and driving. And she rolled her car, and she broke her back. And she was paralyzed from the waist down. And she's got issues as a result. Anyway, so I'm standing in front of her, and, I feel, and I'm saying, like, what do I do here? And God reminded me of Psalm 103. And so I said to her, I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command your body and your soul and everything that is within you to praise his holy name and forget not his benefits. You are healed by Jesus' stripes. You are forgiven of all your sins. You are healed of your diseases. Your life is redeemed from the pit. And you are crowned with love and compassion. And the next thing I know is she manifests a demon. And I command the thing to leave. We go into spiritual warfare. Command the thing to leave. Her legs start kicking all over the place. And she comes out of the wheelchair. <laughs> and, I'm like, and of course, we haven't even seen a headache healed ever. You know, it's all about inner healing, not outer physical healing, spiritual right. healing. So that's interesting. Different. You you studied inner emotional healing first and then discovered physical healing afterward? Yeah. That is that is the opposite so, of how it happened for me. Yeah. But that's yeah. that's cool. So, so yeah, God works in all of us in funny ways. So, but So she gets know, up out of the wheelchair. Yeah, and everyone is like, Oh, praise God and this and that and, and so on. And I was just, my jaw was just dropped. I, there was nothing I could say. And, and, and even then, I didn't put two and two together. That, you know, <laughs> faith speaks and so on. I just thought it was a gift of pure chance. And then about a, about a month later, we, we're running a, a, a holiday camp. And one of the volunteers comes up to me. And no one's given me any ministry teachings ever before. I was in a conservative mainline church. And this guy says to me, hey, Alan, I've got something that might interest you. And it was um, Curry Brake's 2009 DHT. And I, and I listened to it. And the moment I listened to it, it was like, seated in heavenly places, Christ in me, hope of glory, commanded this lady. It just, wow. It just went, okay, I can see it. I can understand what the church is missing, where we've been, what we've been missing, where it is, and the whole works. It was, my life's never been the same since. And it's been a journey, hey? You know, and I look at it now and I think, wow, Lord. You know, why did we have to go down that whole road? And like I said to you, the Lord said to me, Alan, you, what you really needed was, was love. And the devil took you on a power route. And you thought the power would bring you love, but it didn't. And I've never met the guy who, who, who said, I love you. Not I love you. Jesus loves you in, in the shop. Never don't know who he is. Never met him. And, and I must <laughs> say, I often think, you know, if only you knew. He will uh, know. You're going you're gonna to meet him in eternity. Amen to that. And, and you know, That's going to be cool. I hope I'm there. Huh? I, I, I want to be there and see the look on your face. Wait a moment. Okay. Technically, we're both living in eternity already. No, that, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but I mean, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So God said, you know, you've been looking for power when you needed love. 
And those three words were the exact words that you needed at that time. And for, I'm all for signs and wonders and miracles in the supernatural. I relish it. I love it. But I never, ever discounted what three simple words can change a person. And the guys that I, I disciple and I work with, I say, don't, you never understand what your words do. You might just smile at one person at the right time, and that's what they needed. And God will water, and God will bring the increase, but you must be what you caught. It's an ongoing journey, you know, and, and I can say, Lord, I thank you. It's an honor to walk it. it it's, it's not easy, as you know. It's not easy. Uh, but God does so many amazing things along the journey. And I've found, like you, I'm sure, the more that I point people toward the love of God, the more he is able to do in their lives, the more he's able to transform and change them, because it really is his love that is the transforming power that changes us into sons. What and is it? It's like I said to people, I said, you know, you know, we have so many people saying, you know, I'm at the foot of the cross, I'm at the foot of the cross. And look, without the cross, all our lives would be a mess. I'm happy to admit Jesus is my Christ. I'm very happy to admit it. And, and, and you know, if you took a cross out of my life, I would go straight back to where I was in November 1998, I believe spiritually. Without the cross, we're nothing. But we've moved beyond the cross now, and we're going on a journey to the Father. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I, as much as the cross has done so much for me, I found that I can't stay there. I can't stay at the foot of the cross because God has picked me up and he said, okay, we have some things we have to do. <laughs> you have to learn about me and you have to learn about my kingdom and you have become this identity that I've given you. And so um, it is, it's a process and it's a long walk. It is a long walk. But, but, but the thing is, it's a journey of love now. Yeah. We're heading to the Father and the Father's love. Uh, I, there was a period where I looked at my Christian maturity as, oh, I can heal this, and I can do that, and I can do this, and, and God just, you know, he has a way of cutting you down at the knees, you know, in love, <laughs> and, and, and what I realized was actually, you know, if you, you can walk in great signs and wonders and not have any love, and you That's just true. miss That is but, true. Um, and, and, and I really, our only spiritual sign of maturity really is, are we loving like the Father? You know, there's power involved in love, and there's, there's also sacrifice involved in love. And the only way we can say to anybody, you know, what, how, how mature are you as a Christian is, well, how are you loving like God? How, and, how well do you love people really is, I think, the litmus test for spiritual maturity. It is. And um, I know people across the board from Orthodox Calvinists through to um, Radical Graces. I, in all honesty, I've, I've seen love in every camp and I've seen yeah. mess ups in every camp also. And, and for us to stand in a place and say, you're right and you're wrong, and I've seen more love from Calvinists sometimes than I have from Graces. Yeah, Lord, it's love. You know, where is it in 1 John 4 where he talks, you know, we always say, as, you know, because in this world we are like him. But we forget the first part, which, um, you know, what is it, like God is love, whoever lives in love, lives in God and God in him. And this way love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. So how is yeah. love made complete? It's made complete by loving others and loving God. Those were the two commandments that Jesus pointed to and said, upon these two rest the whole law and the prophets. Of course, you know, and, and, and what I realized is, I mean, even in my own life, I got so focused on the doing part and the loving others that I neglect the relationship part. And, and that's been a real, that's my current challenge is get yeah. back to the intimacy and the relationship. You know, what I realized is, it's like a coin. 
in this way, love is made complete. There's a completeness only when we are fulfilling both sides. If you if you file off one side of the coin, it has no value anymore. That's true. It's not a coin. There are lots of people who are completely focused on only loving God and and are useless in the world. And there are right. others who are so focused on loving people that they've forgotten their first love. And and, right. and we need to really just this is the center road. Love God yeah. and love others. Um, and, it, and it's the same thing with displays of power. Uh, there are a lot of people who are very focused on power and signs and wonders. Yes. But they give very little thought to the relational aspect of Christianity, which is the relational aspect with the Father, the relational aspect with other believers. And like you said, it's only one part of the equation, and you have to have the whole thing in order to be healthy. Exactly. And I mean, you know, I remember last year I was struggling through some things, and God said to me, He said, Alan, but I know you love me by the way you love people. And that really, you know, it was like, yes, Lord. Thank you. <laughs> but I want to really love you, you know, also. There's, there's the duality. There's, yeah, our character plays a big part in it. We, we might be righteous by faith, but, but we, can, we can have a really unrighteous, unrighteous character that goes alongside our righteousness. And yeah. that's where I say, you know, I used to think all Christians were hypocrites, and then I found myself one. I'm always very wary that, that people are looking at me. Um, and not in a, in a sense of you of, ooh, be worried or be concerned in that sense, in you know, a negative sense, but as an example of, well, if we're going to be Christ to the world, and the world definitely needs examples of Christ, how are we going to live? And how are we going to treat people? And we can quite easily go out and, and fantastic displays of signs and wonders, but if our hearts aren't for the people, we're just putting ourselves on a pedestal. The biggest challenge we've all got is to say, don't look at me. Look to Jesus. Uh, right. He's the only one that can do it. I, uh, I really love what God is doing in your life. And I love the way his plan is unfolding in your life. It's just amazing to me. To see how he takes people in all walks of life is just continually, over time, working out his plan. And, I don't know, it just makes me love him all the more for how awesome he is. <laughs> Yeah, no, he is amazing. I mean, exactly. I mean, exactly. You know, we don't we don't see it sometimes on the ground. Yeah. You know, as individuals. Yeah, he's amazing. There's no doubt about that. It's been wonderful talking to you. Finally. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your life with us. It's an amazing story, and I know that it must be difficult for you to share in some audiences because it is such a fantastic story, and people are probably not likely to believe it. But I just wanted to thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. No, it's been an honor. Thank you. It, it really has. Um... Yeah, it's been good talking to you. We should talk again sometime. That'll be an honor. Thank well, folks, that is our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for dropping by. If you're new to the podcast and you haven't been to my website, you might drop by and check out the articles I have there. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can contact me at admin at prayingmedic.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at prayingmedic.com. I'd like to thank you again for dropping by. I hope you enjoyed the show.